Minehead Baptist Church Sermon Podcast for Sunday the 22nd of October 2023. Hello and welcome, thank you once again for joining me, my name's James and I'm the web guy here at NBC. This week Paul continued our study in 1 Thessalonians and he looked at how to please your father. The reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 to 12. So go and join Paul as he's introducing the service. Welcome to Minehead Baptist Church. Welcome wherever you are, online or here this morning. My apologies about the croaky voice. Um, I've just woken up with it this morning. I will tell you, it was not because I was shouting at the rugby last night. Although, if we've got anyone in South Africa listening, I just want to tell you, we was robbed. But nonetheless, it's lovely to be with you. As we were discussing, in case you didn't realise... Two minutes, 30 seconds was the only bit of the match that South Africa were ahead in. Uh, We was that close. It's going to smart for a few days, just to let everyone know. Got a few notices for the week. Firstly, to remind all of of you that are in fast starters, there's a quick 10-minute meeting after the service in the lounge where we're going to let you know about Christmas and a few other arrangements which Tommy is going to be leading. Uh, We have... Uh, the light party happening at the hub a week, to, week today at, at four o'clock. So I know many of you have bought milk containers. Thank you very much for that. I don't know if Luke needs any more. I saw him wandering. We're probably okay now. So, okay, that's brilliant. If you bought some, fine. We think we're about okay. That would be amazing. And then I want to invite Debbie up because I, I'm not quite true how I should say this about a lady. But, but <laughs> I thought about introducing Debbie by saying she's 70 and then realised <laughs> and then realised that wouldn't be true. But it is true to say, Debbie, because she is only, let's be honest, 52. <laughs> is that right? Too late. Too late. <laughs> the hurt's been had, has it? Okay. But, but it is true to say our amazing company of girls is coming up to their 70th anniversary. <laughs> It's not me that's 70 yet. Um, just uh, Sue asked me last week if I could come up. You might have noticed, oh, it's just disappeared. The um, Girls' Brigade are celebrating 70 years of being here. In the, I think as a, a national organization, we're 130, 120. Um, but here, we've been here 70 years. That is 70 years of God's word going out into Minehead through their children through their girls that have come through Girls Brigade. I don't know how many girls have come through Girls Brigade, but we're going to have a service on the 1st of November to celebrate 70 years and whatever the future brings. Numerically, we're quite low. Um, We got wiped out by COVID um, number-wise, but that doesn't matter. We're not in the numbers game. We're there to, to encourage our girls and teach them about Jesus. And one of the things that's been really encouraging, we put an advert out on Facebook... And the lovely comments that, oh, I remember going to Girls' Brigade. Most of them remember Sue. <laughs> She's like a local celebrity um, who, who was a captain here for many years. But we'd love any of you to come and join us for a, a short service on Wednesday the 1st to celebrate being 70 years old, to encourage the girls that are coming now, their parents, who are very supportive, actually. We have lovely supportive parents to encourage Amy who who leads Girls Brigade she just doesn't like standing up the front (laughs) Um, but to encourage you know to encourage us as an organization to keep going 
um, because sometimes it can be hard. Actually, it's great fun at the moment because the girls are lovely. Um, but yeah, do, do come and join us. If you've had any connection with Girls Brigade, we'd love to have you there. But even if you haven't, do come for this short service. It's going to be a service of enrolment, which means that we welcome the girls back into the company for another year and a short celebration. And there's going to be cake. <laughs> I know that always appeals to you, but you're not going to be there. In case you're wondering what Debbie just whispered to me, she got me back for the 70th birthday, 70th year old comment, because she said, and she, uh, my, my, my apologies, but I'm on holiday and not able to be there, and she said, there's cake, and then she just whispered, with quite an amount of glee, I'd like to say, but you're not having any. <laughs> so, so thank you for that reminder. Do you know, it is true to say I want to encourage you to come, because one thing I know about this church, and I know about the Girls' Brigade and other things that happen is this is faithful service to a living God. And it's good to celebrate that faithfulness. My reading this morning comes from, came from Acts chapter 1. And in the middle of Acts 1, well, at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, there's some amazing lines, and we kind of miss the power of them if we're not careful. So Acts 1, verse 4 and 5 say this. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that's here this morning with us, that for them and for us comforts us and guides us, that sets his truth in our hearts, that reminds us of Jesus' words. And illuminates those words, gives light to them. And, lest we forget, dear church, fills you and I and the body he calls his own, his church, with power. They're amazing words because they remind us that this is his church. We are his people. And no matter how you've come this morning, he is the one who holds the key and breaks the power of whatever holds you. Lorraine, let's worship. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, as we go to worship, I wonder if we could stand up and declare the word of God together. If we could have the psalm up, um, please, Stephen. Psalm 24. Okay, thanks. So what I'd like us to do is, um, if we all stand, and we're going to split into two halves. So if, if that side of the church can, um, we'll do the, the black writing, and um, if that side can do the, the red. But I'd like us to say it with absolute conviction, like we are a formidable army, and we are declaring the scriptures with authority. So, um, and then we'll, we'll sing our first hymn. But... Um, if we could have then the first hymn um, with the offering being taken and uh, thank you. Okay, so if we'd like to stand and, and this half will go first in the black ink. Okay, lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors. Who is this King of glory? Lift up your heads, O you gates. 
Who is he, the King of Glory? you are this morning I wonder where in that prayer in the midst of that where you are whether today is a day you feel the Lord is giving or the Lord is taking away I wonder where you are if today you feel the road ahead is marked with difficulty and pain and suffering whether you feel the road ahead looks smooth I don't know where you are but I do know you are here and you are welcome amongst God's company and amongst his people And we're going to do something that shows that, actually, that we're all welcome. But before we do that, I just want to say, I don't know how far you've come this morning. Uh, I've come, well, probably half a mile. (laughs) What about you? But I know we've come from all over the place. And Sarah, hi, Sarah. We know you've come from Adelaide. And we want to welcome you amongst God's people this morning. That's quite a journey just to come to mine here, Baptist Church. And thank you for it. But in that sense, it's good to be church family together And just to do something as family together. So I want to invite you, young and old alike, children and adults. I know we don't normally do this with the children in, but sometimes it's really nice to do this as family and appropriate that we just share the peace. We just give each other that sense of blessing. And if you don't know what that means, the words you might greet someone with you don't know is the peace of the Lord be with you. And the responses and also with you. Because we're family, church family together, whether you've come half a mile, I'm I'm not sure. Oh, I know where the nearest person is. Hi, Tricia. Next door. (laughs) Or whether you've come from the other side of this amazing world God gave us. I invite you to go and share this with everyone. And yes, it does mean you need to move. But the peace of the Lord be with you. And also with you. Hallelujah. And that his son had won. And that's all they needed to know. And it is all we need to know this morning. So I want to encourage you to worship with our amazing worship group. And to proclaim the fact that all we need is our amazing Lord. stand in awe of you this morning the one who is our all in all and we bring before you our young people and children and we stand in awe of the one who can change lives meet them where they are bring them to you the one that's already paid the cost and saved them and so unashamedly Lord To the one who we stand in or to. We pray this morning they may encounter you. Learn more of you. Come to follow you. Accept you as their Lord and Saviour. Repent of their sins, Lord. 
and invite the Holy Spirit into their lives. We stand in awe of the one who can because we know the one who can. And we pray that our young people would have the most blessed morning, but most of all, the most blessed of relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as our young people leave. And actually, as a sign that we do believe in the God that meets them. And if it's your custom, if you're able, as they go past, just to pray for them, that would be amazing. They're an amazing group of young people. It's an absolute privilege when I go out to be with them. They often correct me. But the reality is they are awesome and they are amazing. And we stand in awe of the God that is their God. Their relational God. Father, we thank you for the awesomeness of seeing church young and old together. We pray for the youngest, that they may be drawn to you. And the oldest among us, that we too may be drawn to our Saviour God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think John's doing the intercession. I think John's going to come. Please be seated. Sorry, I should have said that. That was my error. Lorraine's reminded me. Thank you, Lorraine. Um, John's going to come and lead us in some prayers. And I want to draw your attention to the, the amazing... I'm not, well, I'm not quite sure if it's banner or picture or painting or whatever it is, but it doesn't matter. I'm not sure the descriptive word, but I'm sure that I know that it's got a pack of a punch in terms of its words. Uh, on this day when those words of Isaiah 2-4 are so pertinent, John's going to come and lead us in prayer. This week is Disarmament Week, and in a year when global spending on weaponry is two and a quarter trillion dollars, and the effect of that trade can be seen, we're going to make this the topic for our prayers. There will be spaces in the silence when we can consider our, what our response should be. But before we pray, I would ask you just to consider the picture of the knife angel on the screen to which I will be referring. Let us pray. Lord, we recognise the reality that we are powerless and can do nothing to reduce the world trade in arms. But you are mighty, the battle winner, and can do all things. We bring this world to you, a world where precious children made in your image starve, where the innocent flee and die, where the powerless are exploited, and where fine-meshed power rolls on. We begin by acknowledging the present situation where so much is spent on weapons is a wrong and an evil use of resources, and we seek your solutions and your intervention. We pray for the world's spiritual leaders of all denominations and faiths, for political leaders of whatever character, the media of all persuasions, 
for writers and all those who mould opinions. And we ask that you set them free from constraints of history, that you liberate them from the restrictions placed on them by groups who seek only their own benefit or profit. But above all, that you will set them free from fear, fear of loss, of control, of status, of resources, of power. Free from the fear of the other, fear of the neighbour. We pray that you will give them courage to seek the ways of peace and of reconciliation and not rely on weaponry. Lord, in a moment of silence, we now ask what is our responsibility and that you begin to reveal to us what our response should be to this reliance on armaments. Forgive us that we have been silent and neither prayed nor spoken, or spoken when we should have remained quiet. Forgive us when we too have succumbed to fear and decide that being blessed as peacemakers and the children of God is too onerous a concept. Forgive us that we have blindly accepted that our security is in weapons and not in you. Lord, equip your people worldwide and us here to enter the arena and speak words of peace. Lord, we now consider disarmament in this land, focusing on the extent and nature of knife crime. Our eyes are opened when we remember that the knife angel is made up from over 100,000 confiscated blades. We begin by praying for the families of those killed on our streets, for those injured and for those traumatised by what they've seen and heard. Lord, you must weep with them. Bring comfort. Bring healing. Lord, we know the situation is wrong, but we pause here to repent of our glib moral judgments on those children and young people who carry weapons, the vast majority of whom say it's for self-defence because they are frightened. Lord, how often have we said or thought that that's criminally inappropriate? In silence, we move into the world of their fears. We remember the universal background and uncertainties of adolescence the doubts and anxieties. We imagine stepping out of our houses on the way to school, avoiding eye contact, <coughs> remaining on the right side of the street, avoiding others fearful for our safety. We join a group for safety. We know of those who've been killed and we begin to carry a knife, an illusion of safety. Father, we experience the erosion of youthful freedoms. We ask that you remove the reasons of their fear and the fear itself. Build up and lead all who work for peace on our streets 
Give us new understanding and your voice and words to speak. Lord, finally, we pray for disarmament here in NBC. We remember and repent of the times when we have come here armoured not in righteousness, but in rightness. When our strength has not been in you, Jesus, but in the weapons of words and attitudes. When past experience prevent us from being open with each other and have closed us off from intimacy. Lord, like the others for whom we've prayed, free us from fear, particularly the fear of being vulnerable one to another. Release us from the fear of getting it wrong. Free us from the fear of being judged and the practice of judging. Breathe into us love and the awareness that we are all sinners, all saved by grace all made in your image and each with specific gifts given by you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers and disarm the fears that constrain our leaders, our peoples and ourselves. Amen. Our reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in a passionate lust like the heathen, who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we already have told you and watched you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you do love all brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on authority, on another. Amen. Amen. Shall we just pray for Paul as he brings the word? So, Father, we thank you for Paul. Lord, we pray your anointing on him today. Lord, we pray he would speak words of life and words of hope. And, Father, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we long to hear your voice. And, Father, we just pray your blessing on him as he brings your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 
Amen and Amen. And thank you for the prayer. Well, we're continuing to look at Paul's letter, the first letter he writes to this amazing church in Thessalonica. A letter, if you remember, that's written to a young church. It's a church designed to help them grow. Paul, in the first three chapters, has reminded them what a church should be, told them that this kind of baby of a church needs to grow up, reminded them that there's going to be growing pains, and then tells them to take a stand. If you read to the end of the book, you'll see that he is going to concentrate on the second coming, the coming of the Lord, and Tommy will be preaching about that next week. But before he gets there, he feels compelled to do something. He has this amazing passage when we we could sum it up by saying, he's saying to them, you need to live a life that pleases your father, God. I wonder if you're like me. I don't think I have ever done so much walking as I did during lockdown. Is that true of many of us? I suspect it's true of a lot of us, actually. It's as if walking somehow became a popular exercise or an outdoor sport. I'm not sure you could ever have... Well, you do have Olympic walking, but the reality is I was not going that fast. As you walked around, were you like me? Did you see entire families walking together? Or, or in fact, did you, like me, see people the other side of the streets that you didn't know And you went hello to them. Did you do that? Or did you have that happening to you, I wonder? How quickly things have changed. How quickly now we've gone back to head down, fast as you can go, say hello to no one. That's the reality of this, isn't it? Anyway, that's not my point really. (laughs) My point is this. That when in lockdown, even though I was probably going to do a circular route which in Pagnell Road is good because you've got hills one way or the other. And if you say, I'll avoid the hills, you go downhill, but then you realise you've got to walk uphill to get back home. Good exercise. But walking had a purpose. In that case, exercise. What about when you walk? Do you walk to get somewhere or to see someone? Or You get my point. There are loads of different reasons why you might go on a walk. But friends, Paul, in many ways... Uh, sum something up here. Do you know, our Christian life can be compared to a walk. i tell you why. Because it begins with a step of faith. The step of faith leads to a walk of faith. Now, I may not be correct here, but I know something about my own walking. I learnt it as a baby, and I hope it's still true today. When I walk... I go forward. It's progress. Talking of girls' brigade, I once did a walk for boys' brigade, Debbie. We did a walk, we thought we'd do this walk, we thought we'd do it for 25 miles, and yes, we tried to walk backwards. <laughs> Let's just say it wasn't much of a success. Therefore, I am sure that when you walk forward, you walk with purpose. You walk to a place or to see someone or to be with someone or you get them adrift, don't you? But the truth of the matter, therefore, is our Christian walk of faith has and must have purpose. We must make progress. Walking demands strength. 
It builds up muscles. And so it's also true of our faith walk. And we must walk in our faith because the alternate to that is what? If you don't walk in your faith, then faith stagnates. It decays and frankly it starts to infect those around you. We need to walk in our faith. It must be a living, breathing thing. We must make progress. And we must be sure to walk in the light. It's true to say, and I'm glad to say that there is now a limitation on this in terms of what I'm about to tell you. But when my mini lost its lights and I was out in the countryside at 12 o'clock at night, I wondered what to do. I came home without lights down the country lanes. It's the most frightening time I've ever driven a car. If you don't have light, it's awful, isn't it? Well, I found it so. We need to walk in the light. Why? Because the enemies put down traps and detours to catch us out. If we do not walk in the light of Jesus Christ in his ways, have our walk of faith in him, then frankly, the enemy will have us. And of course, it's also true to say, if you take this walk analogy, and we're going to finish it now, at the end of life's walk, we'll step into the very presence of the Lord. It's got a purpose, a finish. And I think, believe, in this passage, Paul describes the kind of threefold walk for Christians to follow. So here goes. Just as I did last week, if you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it up at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the first 12 verses. So we can kind of follow it together. Paul says these three ways of walking. I'm going to try and summarise them up as follows. In verses 1 to 8, firstly, he says walk in holiness. Friends, it's true to say, if we could go back to the Roman Empire at the time Paul was writing this letter, we would have discovered something. We would have discovered that the moral climate was not healthy. Immorality was a way of life. And why was it so? Because thanks to slavery, the middle class and the rich had time on their hands. They had the ability to be able to do whatever they want to do, according to other Roman historians. And so they used that time to indulge in their pleasures. The Christian message that Paul Green gives here to this Greek church in Thessalonica, which is about holy living, was new to the culture. And it wasn't easy for these believers to fight the temptations around them. Is it me? Or does that chime with any of you about our current culture? Whatever else is true, somehow the things of God seem to have become disposable, even God himself. My God can be anyone or anything I want God to be. That's our cultural view. Actually, what I need him to be. No, what I want him to be. Do you get the drift? But here in this letter, Paul gives three reasons why they, indeed us, should stay on the path of a holy life. Firstly, verse 1, to please God. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. It was a non-Christian philosopher that said everybody lives to please somebody. The challenge is, the Christian would add, that many people live to please themselves. Do you know the other day I was behind a supermarket in I was behind I was behind a lady in a supermarket in town. You know the one where you're queuing up. Why is it incidentally that I always get the queue that seems to take the longest time? Queuing up behind this lady. And what struck me actually was not the lady but the t-shirt she had on. It said this on the front. Do whatever makes you feel good. Really? She had a young teenager with her. And the young teenager was obviously not enjoying being there and was making the fact well known. You know what teenagers are like. You can imagine. As we're waiting in this queue, mum turns to the teenager loud enough that I heard, so I'm assuming others heard as well, and said to this teenager, the trouble is, with you, you never think of what I want. Surely, that young teenager was simply just taking the parental advice written on her t-shirt. Truth of the matter is, that the challenge with living to please ourselves is there's no sensitivity towards the needs of others. We need to live like that. Frankly, friends, you've not come to church this morning to please you or please the pastor. You've come to worship holy God. Period. And you may not be very pleased about being here this morning, but if that's true, hallelujah that you're still here. Because we've come to worship holy God. Romans 15 one says this. Who, sorry, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's fairly strong words, isn't it? Fairly apt words. Paul continues to share the reality with his readers. And just like last week, I want to honour you by doing the same here. So here's the reality. Christians cannot, must not go through life pleasing only themselves. And if you want it more direct, you cannot go through life just pleasing you. It's not the way of being a Christian. And furthermore, we must be careful when it comes to pleasing others. It's possible to please both others and honour God. But it's also possible to please others and dishonour God. Pleasing God ought to be the major motive of a Christian life. Because pleasing God means much more than simply doing God's will. It's possible to obey God and yet not please him. That's a staggering fact. I'm going to read it again. Pleasing God means much more than simply doing God's will. It is possible to obey God and yet not please him. Then Paul continues this work of holiness in verses 2 and 3. He talks about obeying God. It says this, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Remember what's going on around Paul at this time? 
And Paul reminds them, that these new believers, that sexual immorality does not please God. Why? Because God created sex. And he has the authority to govern its use. That's the reality. We never have to seek God's will to know, sorry, never have to seek to know the will of God in this matter. He tells us in scripture. He tells us clearly that sex is for marriage and that adultery is wrong. And Paul knew that the sexual standards around him in the Roman Empire were really low. And let's be honest, in many societies in the world today, including our own. The temptation to engage in sexual intercourse outside of marriage has always been powerful. The scripture says, not right. Giving in to that temptation, now disastrous results. I've got to tell you, I've lost count of the number of people that I've been speaking to where they thought this person or that person loved them dearly. And yet, brokenhearted, they came and say, they're no longer with them. Giving in to that temptation can have disastrous results. Sexual sins always hurt someone or individuals or families or businesses or churches, the list goes on. And beside, according to Paul, the physical consequences, there are spiritual consequences. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20 say this. These are tough words, friends. But they're in scripture and they're words we should heed. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. What that's crudely saying is that good health here is to take all sexual desires, all activities, and place them under God's, under Christ's control. Paul then goes on, because he wants to get something else out here. He says that we must glorify God in verses 4 and 5. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Friends, here's a reality. How much time do we spend, you and I, let alone some of our young people, in trying to fit into the world around us? How much time do we do that? How much time do we tell our young people and said we should be saying something to them, shouldn't we? How much more healthy would it be if we taught our young people a fundamental truth that sometimes we adults forget here's the deal if you are Jesus Christ's you are supposed to be different to anyone that's not his Christians are different from those that are unsaved full stop How much better equipped would we be? And indeed, how much better would we equip our children if we grasp that truth? That we're different. But that difference is worth celebrating. It's worth standing for, isn't it? After all, if Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world, how much more important is it that we who know him stand and declare it? 
A bit different. If you want to know how different, I've used my own testimony before, but let me tell you, it's truth. If I had been standing here now as a, uh, and wasn't a Christian, I suspect I'd be dead. And if you want to know why, because my own cousin, who I was friends with, peas in a pod with, rejected the Lord at 16, almost the same day that I took the Lord, and he died 10 years later. See, I don't speak out of a sense of it maybe, but a sense of reality. A reality I've had to deal with in my own life, quite frankly. And I want to tell you the truth. I want to be different. I want to be different to the world. Because I want to reflect to the world, my saviour, what about you? And Paul is saying, isn't he, that the Gentiles, the unsaved, don't know God. Therefore, they're going to live ungodly lives, aren't they? We could blame them all we want, but we can't, friends. They are going to live ungodly lives. They do not know God. But we know God. And we should glorify him in this world. In fact, more than that, we're obligated to do it. And we're obligated to be different. I wondered how to summarise that up. These are my words. And if you are in a life group, I'm going to put them out later as a question. We should not conform to the standards of our society. Rather, our being different should call our society to its knees in repentance. We should not conform to the standards of our society. Rather, our being different should call our society to its knees in repentance. And to life group leaders, I say, debate. Secondly, Paul says in verses 9 to 10, we should walk in harmony. How about your love for one another, Paul goes on. Sorry, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. The transition from holiness to love is not a difficult one. In fact, Paul made that transition himself before he writes chapter 4. If you read his prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 13, you'll see that's the case. And I want to encourage you this week to look at the prayer and ask yourself, what is God saying to me? Dear life group leaders, please note, that's the second question. And there are four basic words for love in Greek. Did you know that? We've got Tommy. He could come and tell you and pronounce them properly, but I'm going to do my best. But there's four words for love. They are eros, refers to physical love, and our word erotic comes from it. But it doesn't have to be sinful. It's culture that's turned it into sin. That was not the case in Paul's day. Because in Paul's day, the main emphasis on this was sensual. And there's another word. I will just let you know that word of eros for love is never used in the, in the New Testament, ever. And there's another word, pronounced storge. That refers to family love, you know, the sort of thing, the love of parents for their children. That word too is never used in the New Testament. But there are two words that are, and they are words you've probably heard before. They are phileu and the agape. Phileo, love is the love of deep affection, such as in a friendship, or would you believe, even in marriage. 
It's that kind of love. But it's agape love that's unique in the Greek. Because it's the love that God shows towards us. And it's a love, according to Greeks, that's simply a love not based on feeling, but an expression of our wills. Agape love treats others as God would treat them, regardless of feelings. What does that mean? What it means is, no matter how you feel, dear Christian, about any other brother or sister in Christ, you are called to love them agape, as God would love them. And frankly, you don't have a choice not to do so. Let's be honest, okay? How often do we refuse to love each other in an agape way, based on the fact we don't feel that the other person deserves it? I want to suggest everybody here knows what I mean when I say not even the pastor, or specifically not the pastor, has always loved people in in that agape way. Because sometimes we all let our feelings, don't we, overcome And whether privately or within the church, we refuse to love in that way. I want to invite you for once, and only you can do this, to be honest with yourself and with God. And ask yourself, do you love all in agape? Why? Why is it important? Scripture here, indeed, Paul in this passage doesn't give us an option. We're called to love when it costs the most. We're called to set aside our feelings and love as God loves. And why? Because a Christian, we have the nature of Christ in us, don't we? We're being made, transformed into that nature. And therefore, if Jesus and our Father God are agape, so should we love in an agape way. The reason we have no choice, God is agape. And then we're told to walk in honesty, verses 11 and 12. It says this, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may be in the respect of outsiders, and that so, and that you, so that you will not be dependent on anyone. When I first read this scripture when I was a young Christian, it gave me a real problem. Because I acknowledged something. It is true to say, really true to say, that you know Lorraine's very good with her hands with craft. I've often, even now, I say to Lorraine, I can do this quick job in the manse. I checked not, there was one this week, and Lorraine went, no, ring Steve. (laughs) Because the reality is, my hands, I'm not very good at DIY, I can't work with my hands, and I became a Christian when I was sorting checks in a bank. But but Paul says I should work with my hands. No. That's not what it means. Thank you, Lord. When a pastor at the time told me, almost through their laughter, don't be so daft. Because the modern English version puts verse 12 slightly different. It says this, so that you may walk honestly towards those who are outsiders and that you may lack Nothing. It doesn't depend upon whether you work with your hand or your brains or you're at home looking after a family or you're retired. It's not about that. It's about the fact you're going to be honest to your Saviour God. 
And that released the pressure on me and I hope on you. Now that word, as we said in verse 12, the modern uh, English version translates, says it's honestly. It translates in the Greek to something really interesting. Because honestly in this translation, in the Greek that it's originally written in, means to do things in a seemly way. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, saying to you and me, dear Christian, not only do you have the obligation to love, to agape one another, but you also have the obligation to be a good testimony to the people of the world. There's more to being a Christian and more to loving as a Christian loves than simply loving Christians. We must be responsible in all areas of our lives. If you want to know why he was writing this way, well, some of the Thessalonian church had got used to idleness. And what had happened was these Thessalonians had taken literally, misunderstood, probably deliberately, Paul's teaching, and had given up their jobs and were basically saying, the church should feed me. They'd got an awful reputation. Because some of the Christian families that were supporting these folk probably didn't have enough for themselves. And it is true to say, according to other writers, that one of the reputations they got was awful because they'd basically gone to merchants and because Jesus was coming again, they'd run up bills and they'd not paid them back. Now, what would that merchant think of a Christian? I'll leave you the question. Paul is making a point, isn't he? The whole of life is a Christian walk of faith. Not just Sunday, but the whole of life counts. And yes, I still, at some stage, want to pin up on the door somewhere the sign that says, so when you walk through it, you see it, you are now entering the mission field. Because you are. And so these, voice, these verses, if we can sum them up, review them, well, we get to see how practical Christian living is. The obedient Christian will have a holy life by abstaining from sexual sin, Paul says, a harmonious life by loving the brethren and an honest life by the work that he or she does and by not meddling in the affairs of others. Wow. Imagine if you and I took that to heart and did that. We would be different, wouldn't we? And that way of life may of itself may not necessarily help us to fit in. It may not make us popular. It may not give us a quiet life. It may be difficult. Paul's already spoken about the challenges and problems and issues and suffering and concerns that it might bring to your door. It might give us a real problem. It will call us to stand. It may even bring about trouble or persecution. But there again, Possibly, it could bring about the curiosity in others, the respect even. And it might bring about the thing that most of us fear the most. Because we know if we're asked this, we need to respond honestly. If we stand up for the Lord and we're different from him, for him, it might bring, mean that those around us come up to you and go, why are you different? And you might need to be answering Honestly, I am the Lord's. Whatever happens, there's one thing I know. For you, for me, for this church. When unsafe people see Christ magnified in this kind of life, 
they'll either oppose it with envy or their desire to have it for themselves. That's what happens. Dare to be different, dare to stand up. And Paul learned the gospel truth, the good news. And I want to give it to you this morning as we end. Either way, God is glorified. Amen. Let's pray, friends. Father God, I thank you for the reality that you call us to stand. And you call us to difference, Lord. Difference not based on any thoughts we have, but difference based upon the reality of who you are. I thank you, Lord, that that difference matters and it counts. As for myself, Lord, I simply pray. And I invite you, brother and sister, to pray too with me. That I determine to be different for you. To stand for you. I determine, Lord, to simply be who you will have me be. And in the standing and in the being, Lord, I pray many would want to know of you. What makes this life different? And I pray that through the grace of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit and the majesty of God the Father, you would give us all the words to speak that show people, tell people why we're different. And may you at that point, Lord, not just flow through our lives, but beam from us to your honour and your glory, your power and dominion. And because whatever we do, Lord, we just want to say, may our lives glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you remember in the service we talked about Christianity being, faith being a walk? We're going to think of that. I love that Joyce Mayer quote. Christianity is a lifestyle and being a Christian is more than a label. How many of us wear Christianity as a label? Today, it's a tough message, but I want to invite you to make it a lifestyle. And I, every day, I need to be reminded of that. And if you don't, I apologise, but I do. Let's make Christianity our walk of faith and our lifestyle. And frankly, that walk will result in something. And we're going to sing that in worship now. When I stand before the throne. So the reality is when you were saved that wasn't the end that was just the beginning the Lord throughout the whole of your life whether you're young or old or anywhere in between 
The Lord wants to do something amazing with you. He wants to sanctify you. It's a process of being made holy. Its completion will come when we stand before the throne of the Lord and we see him face to face. But the process has begun. It's a work of grace. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, amazing words in verse 29, says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God has not finished with you yet. Which means we stand before him this morning as a people of the Lord who he is sanctifying. Lord, I pray you would sanctify all of us even the more. That your honour and glory may abound in our lives. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you call, justify. Lord, I pray that that may be to your glory and honour. Friends, we're going to use our next song, our worship song, as a prayer. We often sing songs and we just kind of sing them and we're not careful. We're not careful. We don't think of the words. These words are powerful. Because they start, all to Jesus I surrender. And if we use them as a prayer of worship and we sing it sincerely and with a repentant heart, He will take us literally. So I invite you to sing, but only if you are able. And only if you wish. All to Jesus, I surrender. Years ago when I first sang that, God gave me a picture and I think it's for someone here. I imagined my life and the mansion, as a mansion, the mansion that scripture says the Lord is building for me. And I was walking through the halls and it was bright and airy and lovely. Yet we came across a door. The door was shut. And I asked the Lord, why was the door shut? I'd given everything to him and he said, not everything, son. This is the bit of your life you're not giving me. And I remember in this image that came clearly to my mind, me saying to the Lord, but how do I do that? And he was saying, we'll go through the door together. It was beautiful because when we opened the door, there was this room full of dust and rubbish. And yet almost in an instant, it was as if the Lord had cleansed it all. If that image is for you or that has spoken to you, please come and see me afterwards. I just have a sense that God wants to get rid of a lot of the stuff. But he wants to do it with you in a very gentle way because 
I came out of that time of prayer and worship and I thought, why hadn't I done that years ago? I wonder if we could have the chorus of All to Jesus, I Surrender. Because if that is for you, we want to love you as a family. Agape love. And we're just going to sing that chorus with you a couple of times as you surrender all to the Lord. So over you, friend, I pray the blessing of Paul himself as he ends the previous chapter. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love, agape, increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May you strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. And may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna, please feel free to go, but we're going to end with a worship song in here which speaks of my mansion, really, because this was a battle for me. And I wish I'd taken heed of the words earlier than I did. When all I see is the battle, the battle belongs to the Lord. To leave a comment, please go to minehead-baptist.com slash sermons. Well, thank you once again for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.